We are um, continuing looking at the book of Esther this month in the Old Testament. And next month we'll be looking at the book of Daniel over about four or five weeks as well. And I wanted to kind of spend a little bit of time in some of those uh, books, partly because they are involved in our final Immerse reading, Immerse Chronicles, but also they have some very relevant things to speak into our lives today. Who's familiar with the phrase, wrong time, wrong place? Or being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Anyone ever been in the wrong place? You don't have to admit it. Been in the wrong place at the wrong time? Just about everybody in one regards or another has been in that scenario. And once is plenty for most people. But imagine being in the wrong place at the wrong time five significant times. There's a woman, her name is Maggie, and she worked for a global telecom company, and her job involved a lot of travel, and she worked with a team, and they would have to go into all sorts of places all over the planet and help kind of establish cell services, cell networks, and things like that. And she shared the five specific times that she could remember where she was placed in the wrong place at the wrong time. In 2007, she was caught up in, while working, in protests that turned into months of violence in Kenya. In 2009, she was in Uganda to help launch a mobile phone network when riots broke out because of some cultural misunderstandings and they closed roads and the unrest actually trapped her in her hotel for about two weeks. And there was a lot of, uh, they weren't sure if they were going to make it out of that one. In 2009, the same year, her team was in Madagascar during an attempted political coup between an influential mayor and the president. And she was also in Sudan when a U.S. diplomat was killed in the town they were working in, leading to some tense days on the street. And if that was not enough... Finally, she remembers being in Nigeria one time. She was finishing up work in her hotel when a shooting erupted right outside her door. Yes, she has definitely been in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or we could just say that she's very unlucky. Or maybe she needs to find a different job. Even though her job is not typical for most of you and I, life is still full of these seemingly random acts. And there seems to be no rhyme or reason why sometimes they happen. Sometimes we are just in the wrong place at the wrong time. In the story of Esther, Esther is not one of those random acts. Even though last week and the week before we said the name of God doesn't show up anywhere in the entire book of Esther. There are no prayers There is no recorded language of people even appealing to God in any overt way. But Esther is a story about being in the right place at the right time. It is built upon a long history of seemingly random moments which begin to come together as the story progresses. 
So I'd like to actually begin with one of those moments that doesn't show up in the book of Esther at all, but which plays a huge role in what we see happen in this book. If you have a Bible and you like to follow along, you can turn to Exodus 17, verse 8. You know that I like visuals, and I know there's been a reason I've kept this walking stick in my garage for the last three years and haven't used it. For just such a time as this, and I really need one helper who wants to volunteer for just a minute or two to come on up here. All right. One brave soul. If you would stand right over there, and I'm, I'm going to give that to you, and your job with one hand is just to hold it straight out in front of you. Okay? But not like this. Like this. Now she's wondering, okay, you can use two hands. Now she's wondering, what did I get myself into? A few of our youth folks might recognize this particular. Let me read the story. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. I guess it says hands, so you can use two. All right. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired... They took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. We don't have a stone. We could use the chair, but we won't. Well, oh yeah, we have, sorry, we have have a couple of stones here today, yes. Thank you, Mike, for pointing that out. That's actually a very, that's great. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. Now, if you've ever tried to do this, go home with with a broom, Do this for more than about three minutes, and you could be the strongest man in the world competing on ESPN Strongman Challenge, and your hands will start to do this real quick. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Not always a very peaceful word. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Do you want to just stay up there for like the next 20 minutes? Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's, Let's give Carla a hand. We had the chance a number of years ago to hear a message where the, the pastor actually had a, some teens do that for the entire message, hold that up. It's never, <laughs> me, me neither, me neither. It's never easy to hear of the Lord being at war, especially with a particular group of people. 
But the connection between this event and our unfolding story in Esther will help us grow in our own understanding of the ways and will of God, even if we don't completely understand. Just as reference last week in the story of Esther that we looked at, Esther was just made queen. Remember, Xerxes is the king of Persia. He is a party animal. He's a guy who's full of himself. He doesn't like what the previous queen did. He gets rid of her, says, Don't, you're not going to be in my sight any longer. And then he has a find a new queen program that he institutes. And this is not always the nice Sunday school cheery version that sometimes we hear. There's a reason that most Sunday schools won't touch the book of Esther for good reason. Most churches have not touched this book either. Esther was declared queen by Xerxes. But on Mordecai, her uncle's advice, she keeps her family background and nationality a secret. He doesn't want Esther to let the king know that she's actually Jewish and that she actually, her family background comes from the line of Saul, which we talked about last week, the first king of Israel. Mordecai remains near the palace, which puts him much closer to where Esther is. Remember, Mordecai is Esther's sort of adopted father after her parents die. Mordecai takes her on as um, his niece. She's almost like a daughter to him. And so he's somewhere near the palace of Xerxes, the king of Persia. And what he doesn't know at this point, or at least it's not revealed in the book of Esther, is that he has any idea that he's in the right place at the right time. In Chapter 2, let me read a few verses for us. Verses 21 through 23. It says this. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Thana, sounds like a nickname almost, and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. Verse 23. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. You can see why Kidzone is out there today. All the, I'm just trying to avoid some... Uh, some uh, Questions that you guys might get uh, later on today. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. It was officially written down in the record book, the king's record book. Mordecai and Esther were in this position through a series of both fortunate and some unfortunate events. Esther, remember, had no choice in the matter If the king said to do something, you did it. The king's word in Persia was as if you were a god. And anything that the king said could not be revoked. The only way to undo things was to pass a further law that would sort of weaken what the king had previously said. And we've learned before that King Xerxes 
was at least prone to making rash, drunken decisions. Not a good combo for this. Mordecai and Esther, however, are in a position to influence the king. And perhaps maybe they were wondering if this was their moment, their right place, right time moment. We don't really know. And there is so much more in their story. They have a profound yet dangerous opportunity to help their people in the very next chapter. Let me read verse 1 of chapter 3. It isn't Mordecai who gets the credit for saving the king's life, but another man. Verse 1 says this, After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. Haman gets the credit, not Mordecai. Every good story needs a villain. We talked about what good stories, what makes you keep coming back to a story. Every good story needs a villain or someone to oppose what good is happening in the story. And in the book of Esther, Haman is this character. But why? This is the deeper question to dig into. Why is it so important that this detail is included? It says he's the Agagite. The Agagite. Haman was descended from King Agag of the Amalekites. The same Amalekites that the Lord had given instructions to hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. The ones who had opposed the will and work of God and had made their choice not to follow the Lord. And God said, because they have not honored me, they must be destroyed. That was their penalty. Deuteronomy 25, verse 17, it says this, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he has given you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. And then the word is very clear and uncomfortable for us. Do not forget. But they did forget. And later on in the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, after Saul becomes the first king of Israel, God tells him to punish the Amalekites, to finish the job that they had left undone, to attack and totally destroy them for their decision to ally against the Lord God. But what does Saul do? See, Saul thinks he's following what the Lord has said, but he ends up sparing King Agag. And he actually takes the best of their flocks. 
This is a pivotal moment in the Bible, the story of God, because it's, a, it's actually the moment where it says that God regrets making Saul king. Because Saul has now turned away from following God's instructions. And this might have been the end of the story. But the impact of Saul's one decision not to follow the Lord in this way was greater than just being rejected as king by God. See, King Agag was initially spared, but he ended up being killed by Samuel in the same book. And this ancient feud between these two people groups continued almost like a biblical Hatfields and McCoy, an ancient blood feud, although on a much longer and grander scale, hundreds of years. All of this collective history, whether you like history or not, all of this collective detail plays into the actions and attitudes of Mordecai and Haman. It's an ancient wound that is now reopened. And these are two people that now have some measure of power. And when powerful people are wounded, things get bad for everybody else. It's not just that Mordecai doesn't get credit for saving King Xerxes' life. Maybe he doesn't even care about that. But it's the fact that Haman is elevated and revered, a descendant of the people allied against the Lord God. Verse 2 of chapter 3 says this, All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. I would hazard a guess that Mordecai cannot kneel before this man. And his action will have consequences. Haman is furious that Mordecai does not bend the knee. And he decides to showcase his power and authority by taking it out on all the Jews. He's going to settle this ancient feud for once and for all. Verse 5 says this, When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Haman convinces the king that the Jews are the problem in the empire. And Xerxes actually gives Haman authority to do what he wants. This has been a pattern, unfortunately, that has been repeated throughout history. Verse 13 says this, Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces. Remember, we said that this empire was all the way from uh, the lower parts of the Nile all the way to the Indian subcontinent. So this is a massive empire. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for the day 
the day when all of the Jewish people that were in the Persian Empire would be killed, men, women, and children. The couriers went out. Spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. I'm going to stop there for a second. Haman is attempting to do the most extreme act. He's actually attempting to do what Saul never followed through on with the Amalekites, except he's flipping the script. And what happens as a result? It says the people are bewildered. Chaos and confusion. And what happens with Haman and the king? They have a casual sit-down and share a drink. Almost as a celebratory thing. See, this is not a very happy-go-feely story right now. Esther and Mordecai probably didn't know the whole picture of why they were in this situation. Maybe they didn't even think about it being in the right place at the right time because it sure doesn't feel like it right now. But they were provided access and opportunity. See, they thought that they would be doing a good thing by helping to expose a plot against King Xerxes, and then it flips around, and suddenly the entire people of God is placed at risk. And yet somehow God's plan to bring about salvation to the world through his people, the Jews, would continue even if they didn't know how. God waited for just the right moment when their access was important for the survival of all of God's people still in the empire. We'll look a little bit further next week at some of the concluding factors in this story. But I want to say one thing to us today. God's plan isn't always or only about being in the right place at the right time. Plenty of us have those opportunities. It's about having the courage and will to act at that time. See, there are many times where we are placed in positions, but our courage can fail us. We need that strengthening power of the Lord, the one who actually can grant us courage to act on the convictions that our faith leads us towards. Last week, we said that God cares deeply for his people that he's concerned about all the details of your life, and he hasn't abandoned you. And if God chooses to use you and me, then how can he advance his purpose through you, right now, at this time, in this place? Whether we are ready or not, our lives or various people or other situations and struggles will confront us with having to make decisions like that. Sometimes it is for the moment when that we are perhaps the only person in a particular position able to make a difference for the sake of Jesus Christ. And even when we end up in those situations that might feel like the right time and the right place, we don't always realize it at the time. Sometimes we just chalk it up to chance, coincidence, or even dumb luck. There's a couple from California, Conrad and Jennifer. They were moving out of their apartment uh, several years ago. 
when they saw children throwing their toys out a window a couple of stories up, and the situation became very serious when one of the children actually started to climb out of the window after one of his toys. But thankfully, these neighbors were actually carrying something in their hands at that very moment, a mattress box spring. They threw it underneath the dangling three-year-old and called 911. See, the child had actually gotten caught on a little cord as he was leaning out the window, so he's dangling there for a moment. And as he fell, they were able to break his fall and put him safely on the box spring. Conrad said, it feels like I watched a TV show, like it didn't happen to me. Jennifer said, it was very surreal. We were just moving the rest of the day, all of our stuff out, and every once in a while we'd look at each other and just be like, did that happen? Was that real? Here's the kicker. Earlier in the day, the couple had gotten stuck in the elevator of their building, which put them behind schedule and placed them in the right place at the right time where they were able to act in order to save the toddler. We don't always know when it's the right place and the right time. All we're called to do is to trust God. And I know that sometimes that doesn't seem like very much. But it's a whole lot. To trust God, to follow him, and to respond in the way that seems best. It may be that the very spirit of God is the one leading you in that moment, even if you aren't aware of it. With Mordecai and Esther, just like with each of us, choosing to follow God is a risky proposition. It can come with consequences. And yet God has placed each of us in certain situations with certain people at just the right time, and he can give you the courage and strength to act even when you don't think you can. How has he placed you in this time, in this place, to further his work and will in this world? Now, we often have no idea what the consequences or impact of our actions will be, especially in those seemingly random encounters. Our experience or recognition that something is the right place and the right time might be happenstance in our mind at first. Sometimes we said, in retrospect, that's when we realize, oh, that's why I happen to be there with that person in that moment. Today I encourage you to think about those times in your life, look backwards for now, when God did place you in that place to be the person. And it might not be something as dramatic as saving a toddler from a window or confronting the king of Persia. It might be in all of those many small and yet meaningful details that God is so concerned about and interested in. I encourage you to share your experience, maybe share your story or your example with someone else in the next week. Let it be an encouragement both to you and to them. Church, let's pray. God, you indeed put us in the right place at the right time. Sometimes you give us a little glimpse of your bigger picture, and sometimes not. 
And what I ask today as we pray is that you would give each person here today the courage and the strength and the will to act even when we don't see it, even when we can't feel you moving. Help us to realize that you are so concerned about all these details and you choose to use us to further your will and accomplish your purposes in this amazing world. God, I thank you for each person here today. Will you buoy their sense of confidence and encourage them through the power of your Holy Spirit in the week to come. For all of this, Lord, we love you and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to close with one final word from Scripture. The one who carried out the Lord's instructions given to Moses back in Exodus, when God himself told them, do not forget. When Moses had died, this leader, his name was Joshua. And Joshua was finally in a position where God had been preparing him and putting him in the right place at the right time. And now he had to make the decisions without Moses around. And he could have decided to shrink under the weight of that. And God knew this. So this is God's word in that moment. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave to you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Church, this is your word as well. The Lord be with you wherever you go in the week ahead. Amen and amen. Have a great week, church.